My name is Ryan Miller, and I've spent the last 15 years helping hundreds of people just like you to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. I am on a mission to help investors and founders to create new jobs, extreme wealth, and the dream life they deserve. Join me as we peel back the curtains and explore fresh ideas and dynamic personalities as we all move toward our dreams of making billions. Let's get into it. In this episode, we begin a two-part series by taking a deep dive on tax-efficient legal structures for your startup and private investments. My guest, Stephen Hutler, is a world-renowned legal expert. Join us as he speaks about the three buckets he uses to determine the proper structure to minimize your taxes while you get the funding you need. You don't want to miss it. Plus, Stephen reveals the near abroad rule for international investment structures for both funders and founders while he accelerates us all toward our dreams of making billions. Here we go. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today we have an amazing guest, my friend, Stephen Hutler. Stephen is an attorney at Satis uh, Law Firm, and he practices on uh, helping people to uh, structure their funds and, and their business practices, both domestically in the United States as well as international. So he's one of those people we would refer to as an expert. Welcome to the show, Stephen. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so it's great to have you here. Have a brilliant mind like yourself. Uh, we're, we're certainly privileged to to hear uh, deep lessons that you have for us today. So, so Stephen, I, I'd just like to maybe open uh, our discussion with uh, maybe just a brief history about you. So, my understanding is you started your career back in 1990. You were five years old, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. 1990, you we'll got our career. Down, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you got your career started in 1990. Um, and, uh, you know, walk us through where that started. And, and I'm sure we're curious and we'll learn more about how you became an international investment expert on structuring deals. Walk us through that, that 1990, bring us into that moment and, and walk us through the evolution of, of your career in the early days. It's fun. It's like it's such a, if you believe in serendipity or if you believe in fate or if you believe in something else, uh, certainly a lot of that happening at different points in that journey. I came out, uh, I had studied for, the, for, the, uh, for a calling. I'm a trained theologian, uh, a clergyman, and I thought mm-hmm. I'd be a guy, you know, be a part-time professor teaching people, spending part-time helping people, you know, out of a, out of a synagogue setting. Yes. And, uh, and I went to law school because I always wanted to do that. And I figured yeah. maybe I'd spend some time in front of the judge in a bow tie mm-hmm. and maybe eventually be the judge. Those, those kind of things appeal to me. I think those are all kind of related areas. Yeah. And I found after do, um, two years of spending time in a very, very big uh, law firm in New York, I'm a middle class boy from, from Southern California, as far away from New York as you can imagine. And all of a sudden yeah. I'm in this gigantic New York law firm. And litigation means fighting with people. Yeah, I don't kind of like to fight with people. I kind of like to get things done and make things happen. That excites me much more. So for about two years of doing that, I decided I wanted to do transactional work. And I fell into a securities law practice. And this is one of those serendipitous 
the strange things that happens to people, the fables, the myths, the stories that happen to people. I was interviewed for a job when everybody was getting fired a very tough time in 1992. <laughs> and someone said to me, you want to be a securities lawyer, right? You've always wanted that. I'm like, I've always wanted to be a securities lawyer. And yeah. of course, postscript, I think I told you, I never took a class in law school in securities <laughs> law. I took the minimum one corporate law class that I had to take. Yeah. Life is funny. Life is strange. And yeah. um, I became a bond lawyer. And I traveled all over the world and I did about uh, eight, actually about $11 billion in transactions. Very heavy wow. stuff, very exciting stuff. For a middle-class kid uh, from LA to all of a sudden see every deal you're working on in the Wall Street Journal the next day. And it's uh, American Airlines, United Airlines, and it's Time Warner and it's Deer and Company was especially a big client. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just constantly in the markets again and again and again, doing deals, traveling South America, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and all over the United States. So that's how I got started in this. Wow. I fell into this. And after doing this for a couple of years, I said to myself, you know, I didn't get into this to do a deal jockey. I kind of got into this because I wanted to help people and I wanted yeah. to be close. I like the entrepreneurs. I yeah. like hanging out with the guys that make things happen. When <laughs> I was when I was a lawyer at the, at my big firm in my Sherman and Sterling years, yes. I represented Deer and Company. My client was the chief securities council, <laughs> yeah. you know, how many layers away from decision makers, from, you know, and, and I said, I, I had enough of this. I want to go try actually retrain myself yeah. and all the hunters thought I'd lost my mind, yeah. but I actually went and I left the investment banking world representing yeah. Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley and all those big corporations. And I went to this, to the buy side. Yes. I actually retrained myself as a fund lawyer. What that what that is, it's very common for investment bankers to leave their jobs and become fund managers. It's yes. very uncommon for lawyers to do that. And I like to think that's very unique. Yeah. And th- thank so you for of, that. You know, a lot of people know how to make funds. Yeah. A lot of people know how to make the investments that funds invest in. Not yes. a lot of people know both, yeah. at least at a very high level. And that's been something I've been very, very fortunate to have experienced on an international and- Thank you for that. And wow, I mean, uh, what what a cool start to your career. And and precisely what you just said is why I consider you one of the experts that uh, I've ever come in contact with. I mean, such a brilliant mind uh, matched with such a fun personality. I mean, you, you, you've been such a delight to work for, uh, also interview uh, and work with, excuse me. And, uh, you know, I feel like we're just getting started. So, so you mentioned that uh, here you are. You graduated law school. You're you're thrown right into the to the bullpen, so to speak. At least that's how I pictured it. And uh, <laughs> you're doing the securities law, and you're working for these monster global co- corporations. You're flying around globally. You're doing these massive deals. You're really cutting your teeth into high finance early in your career. So that really, uh, although that's not what you expected. Uh, what, a, what a delightful surprise and lucky for me and all our listeners, because we get to now benefit from that knowledge that you did uh, starting in the 90s, early 90s. So so now that, you know, you kind of brought us up to speed. Um, tell me about you said you did 11 billion dollars of deals. So yeah. so, you know, I, I remember you and I were chatting uh, before this uh, this call and you mentioned something about you did one of the first shelf takedowns in U.S. history. And that was like, people didn't even know what that was. And you were able to facilitate a pretty cool transaction and and help 
you know, be a trendsetter um, in helping your client achieve things. And, and, and you still deliver that high level of service, but you do it uh, today. Can you walk me through a little bit about what a shelf takedown is, what that means for investors, fund managers, entrepreneurs, anyone that would be involved? Uh, maybe walk us through a, a little bit about uh, that moment and, and that specific thing. There was a time when everyone who wanted to do a transaction, a big offering with, through the SEC, a public offering, they had to go to the SEC with the registration statement and say, please, SEC, please look at this prospectus for this gigantic deal and, and bless it and say it's okay and we can go to market with it. Yeah. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, the, the, the technology, the securities technology started to evolve. And someone had this kind of neat idea where you could put a whole bunch of different kinds of securities and register them in advance. So American Airlines, for example, if they wanted to issue debt or equity or or or, or pass through certificates or all or preferred stock, any kind of strange thing that they could think of, they would register it all in advance. That's called a shelf. Yeah. The shelf takedown is when you actually do a transaction, you take it down from that registration. You take advantage of the, of the prior the SEC's blessing of the shelf. Yes. And we did what we did that was really unusual was we did, I think, the very, very first large equity transaction for a massive corporation. I believe yeah. it was Deere and Company back yeah. in 1994. Very, very exciting yeah. to be involved in something like that. And, you know, uh, one thing about a practice like that is almost every day you're doing something new. It's never been done before. The, the biggest deal that has ever been done in the air, in the railways uh, world. And, you know, uh, if you ever saw the uh, the famous movie, I like to call it the uh, my practice was planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, John Candy, absolutely. One of my favorite movie, yeah. The legend. So I, yeah. I did a lot of that kind of finance, and it's heavy duty stuff. <laughs> but it's uh, if you if you're if you got the patience for it and you're ready to work through it, it's very very uh, it's terrific training to understand how the financial how the financial system works for very big assets. Yeah, and and boy, it it can seem like a, a quite uh, a labyrinth. Especially, you know, uh, we do good deals. We want to comply with with the rules with the SEC and the international, if that's the case. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but overall, uh, unwinding that that complexity with the SEC, with you know, domestic funds or or investments or what what have you, anyone that's dealing with SEC, with raising capital, whatever it is, can get a little complicated. And so, hire, you know, hiring anyone, especially with your background, is always always a treat to because this is important stuff that we're covering. That that's great. So so you know, I, I just moving forward, I just want to to cover a few things. So you mentioned you started your career in I call it high finance. You know, you were you were doing uh, these these big sexy deals. You know, north of ten billion dollars, decabillion uh, in deals. Um, you know. And then you you decided to take us. I, I, I don't mean a step down, but maybe a step sideways to say, okay, yeah, did been there, done that, did the big deal thing, uh, got a lot of experience for a long time, did a lot of that, and now you're bringing it to the entrepreneur class, right. exactly. So, which which is incredible. And like you said, uh, I mean, uh, you didn't use this word, but maybe a few people thought you're a little nuts for doing this. Here you are, you're just hot as a pistol, you're doing these big deals. I mean, you're living the dream, whether that's finance or legal. What made you decide to go from high finance and then bring that experience to the entrepreneurs, the venture capital uh, world on, on funders and founders? What was it that, that drove you to, to make that change? 
I wanted to be closer to those people making the decisions. I wanted to be closer to the to where the action was, where the deals were actually happening, yeah. and being part of that. And maybe, you know, participate in it, which I have in certain ways, more than most lawyers. That really excited me as much as doing the gigantic deals. The gigantic deals was a very heady experience, like I said, for a middle-class kid. But, you know, when you're dealing with other lawyers or even very talented investment bankers, they're not the ones that are actually making the money. They're kind of, you know, just the ones that are taking advantage of the people that are making the money, right? The guys that are making the money, right? The the creative minds, both my parents were PhDs, very smart people. They were not, they didn't believe that anyone could be creative and be a business person because they didn't know anybody like that. But as (laughs) you and I both know, and I had to learn, some of the most creative minds in the world are business people, right? We don't have to talk about people like, uh, you know, uh, the people who started Microsoft or the people who started, uh, you know, uh, Facebook or, or Tesla. So yeah. th- when when I realized that the possibility existed for me to be work directly one-on-one with those people, making yeah. a difference, making decisions, making deals, that's where I wanted to be. And I took all this kind of big deal experience and I, and I came up with this proposition that I'm bringing it to you entrepreneurs, to you VC guys, to you PE guys, to you hedge fund guys, to you specialty finance guys, creative guys. Yeah. And I can do something that most people can't, which is I've sat there with the big boys, with the bankers. I'm not going to be intimidated by them. but And I understand what you're buying and what you're investing in because I actually yeah. wrote those prospectuses. Yeah. But I can represent you and I can be that entrepreneurial lawyer. That was yeah. my journey. And I love that, right? So you're, you're, you're such a fun guy, but when it, when it's go time, you're tough. I like it. All right, that's, that's kind of an admirable attribute that when you you turn off and you're hanging out with with the rest of us, you know, you're, you're good time. But when it's so time to do work, there's one other piece to that which I think I mentioned to you. Yeah, which please is, do. So the the where my my friend, you know, lawyers, I don't need to tell you are very risk averse. They're kind of scared. Yeah. For me to take to me to retrain myself in the middle of my career was kind of something that a lot of them were, they thought I was kind of crazy, but I did something even crazier at a certain yeah. point, which is I took two years off from practicing law. I got yeah. a brokerage license as you, as we discussed. Yeah. And I went out and raised capital for funds. All right. And this really kind of, <laughs> I had clients whose minds were exploding by this. Yeah. You, you were trained to work on these gigantic deals to do what you're doing, what with your experience, you're actually yes. raising capital. Yeah. But you know, if you've got that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial bug in you, you can't let it go. It's just part of you. It's part of your makeup. And I just couldn't let go. And I wanted to do that. And I did that for two and a half years full time. Yeah. And what that means for my clients is that I've sat on their side of the table. Yeah. There's no such thing as legal risk that, you know, that you cannot say every legal risk needs to be, um, you can't take any legal risk because yeah. if you're on the businessman side of the table, you are always taking some business risks and legal yes. risks. Yeah. And and how to take those risks and thinking about them rationally, practically is what I had to live with as much as my clients do today. That's a, that's incredible. So, you know, I, I, I want to stick on that because raising capital is a huge part of any kind of deal, investment, anything like that. Maybe um, kind of bring us into that moment. Here you are, you know, you stepped away from practice for a little bit and you said, you know what, I really want to understand this industry. I really want to understand raising capital. I mean, I, I which 
like you said, this helps me understand exactly what my clients are going through because I've done it. Right. So walk us through, because uh, uh, as, as you know, and, and many of our listeners know, I started a similar, similar path uh, from, from raising capital myself. Um, walk us through that moment. Right here, you are raising capital. You're, you know, you're fighting the good fight. It, 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 it's, it can be fun. It can be frustrating. It's, it's quite the experience in anyone's career. Bring us into that moment. Walk us through raising capital. What you learned. Um, some of the key takeaways that maybe some of our listeners might be able to benefit from uh, your experience at that time. Walk I come through. to it from a very peculiar, once again, but very specific to my own background which yeah. is that when clergy people and charity people raise capital all the time. I grew up in a house where the phone was, someone was always on the phone trying to raise money for charity. Yeah. And so I said to myself, well, if they can call people who they don't know and introduce themselves, why can't I do that? But for major corporations or funds or entrepreneurs, yeah. especially if I love the story and I love telling the yeah. story. And so that's, the very strange way that I got motivated to want to do this. Um, I remember the, the, the one that motivated me the most was a client that I had that was doing power plants, investing in distressed power plants. Okay. And I had to learn the story. I had to learn the script and get on the phone and tell people the story. But you know, it's, if you have the right kind of personality, it's kind of fun to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think you can make a difference, I, we've talked about this before I've run for office yeah. And I found that one of the nicest ways to meet people is actually to have a story to tell people. Yeah. It gives you an excuse when you walk into a room to, to shake more hands. And so you, have, you, have, you have a reason, you have a purpose to get in that room. Vote for me or yeah. invest with me. And that was, that was my orientation. Um, and I do think that being genuine, but also knowing your, knowing your stuff, yeah. uh, the combination of those two is really very important and people react to it. And that's what's interesting. You could be shy. You could be you could be very very uh, extroverted. You could be as long as you're genuine, as long as you're authentic, and you know what you're yeah. talking about, and you right. listen. That's the other thing. So many people are bad at listening. Yeah. And um, I, I would say those are the things that I learned from those that period of time that I was raising capital, and I would really encourage people to internalize. I love that, and 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 I would echo the same. Um, and many of our guests. this is great. Uh, Everybody I talk to and we bring on the show, actually I'll say the same thing, that listening is probably one of the biggest things that has helped them in raising capital. Not only listening, but listening with compassion, right? You run for office. I mean, there's a level of of compassion. Maybe some would argue that, but it depends on the candidate. But I would say, you know, you you do have to care about uh, your society and and things around you to to be able to do that. And also want a, a a brighter day for yourself and your clients. And so, you know, you, you strike me as someone, uh, this is a saying that, that I have uh, at my company and, and as well as throughout my career is uh, people work is more important than paperwork. <laughs> and, you know, I would say you're kind of that embodiment where, uh, okay, like, you know, you're an attorney, so paperwork, you're no stranger to, but um, you, you seem to have this, this, not only the knowledge, but the, the compelling edge where you understand how to connect with people right? You're saying, look, I can raise money. I like talking to people. I can shake hands. I'll run for office. And it was always about uh, people work, managing your clients, doing doing some people work. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah. And I would say um, further, 
And this is, I've given a lot of thought to this, and this is yeah. something I think is useful to share perhaps as well, which is that I used the term, I think before deal jockey, you know, yeah. um, there, there are folks whose job it is to be investment bankers or lawyers who do the same deals again and again and again, yeah. and they're very skilled and they're, and they're wonderful. It's kind of like watching the world's greatest surgeon at work. That's right. But they're not always interested in the people that much that they're working with. There's not a personal dimension to what they're doing. And um, having traveled a lot, having been interested a lot in what goes on around the world, that's one of my fascinations. And yeah. that's why I do so much cross-border work. Relationships around the world are more important than they are in New York City or maybe in London yeah. or in some of the big financial centers. People trust the people who pay attention to them, who listen to them, yeah. and who sh show concern for them. I like actually a story. Okay. Story time, you know. It's yeah, story time. Story. Let's go. I was once at uh, uh, um, at the printer, which is what a lot of you know securities lawyers do. They stay, stay up all night and get ready to to print something. That was back in the day, and I represented Citibank, and yeah. the client, the the issuer of the bond was a was a Mexican paper company, and there was a woman there who I was friendly with. She represented the the uh, the Mexican company, and I yes. represented Citibank. And I was very close with the general counsel. The general counsel was like one of these guys out of Hollywood depiction of what you'd expect the general counsel to be for a Latin American company. Great. Thick mustache, tall, handsome, thick head of hair. It was just terrific. He's just, yeah. you know, he, and, uh, and he said, Stephen, I want to talk to you. And my friend kind of flipped out. She said, he, he's not your lawyer. I'm your lawyer. Yeah. He says, yeah, but I trust him. Hmm. Um, and that was a that was an epiphany. That was a, yeah. that was one of those uh, moments that you talk about, those journey moments. Yeah. Because I realized I didn't represent him officially, but he felt that I was his lawyer. Yeah. And I think that that's that's something that's that all of us can learn. You'd be surprised how many friends you can make and loyal um, people, loyalists. You, yeah, customers, table, contacts, everybody across yeah. the table, even yeah. if they're representing the enemy, the opposite, because of the way you conduct yourself, yeah, and how much concern you show for them. That's right. I love that story, and you know that t that ties into the the values that we certainly hold dear uh, on this show, which is your your reputation and your relationships. Right, you optimize those things; just tend to go a little bit smoother. Whether you're starting a business. Uh, pitching uh, a VC or, or, or the opposite, do, placing an investment. When you have a solid reputation, people know you, they like you, they trust you. Um, things things tend to go a little bit smoother. So so being uh, you know hold, holding your integrity uh, high within it tends to eventually catch up in a positive way. And and you know even though it was the the, the person on the other side of the table. Uh, there was something about you, something about your reputation that they could bank on, and they did. So, so, so moving forward, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm curious about. So here we are, we're talking about Stephen's a great guy, all that stuff. So, you know, we, what, what I really want to know, and I think many of our listeners do as well, is uh, the the topic of this show is both domestic and foreign uh, investment structures, right? This is this is this is your dance floor. This is where you like to party. So, um, you know, let's, let's transition into a little bit. I'm sure our listeners want to know. So let's start with maybe some domestic structures that are quite common, um, that just, they're really quick, fairly simple stuff. Um, help our listeners understand, like, what do they need to know 
when what are some of the structures they need to put their investments in uh, when it's just a, a, a domestic deal? Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI podcast and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. So the, the I want to take a step back for a second before we get to structure, sure. where structure lawyers and accountants and so forth, where they all start. It's funny. We can call it, we're trying to be creative and we're trying to be interesting. Yeah. Let's call it the, the fable of the three money pots or something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. The story of the three money pots. <laughs> okay. um, the, there are three kinds of money from the U.S. taxable, from the U.S. taxable tax yeah. standpoint when you're structuring. Yeah. Number one. People who, and everything goes from where your investors come from. Right. This is really the thing you, that every investor and every listener on this um, podcast can really absorb and will make you sound so much more knowledgeable. Number one, if your investor lives in the U.S. and pays taxes as an individual, as a taxpayer, that's one of the pots. That's one of the categories. That's, one of, that's a certain type of investor that needs a certain kind of a structure. Yeah. Category two is U.S. investors that are charities or, you know, like think about endowments, think about maybe even in certain cases, your 401k or your, you know, your RIA, um, you know, uh, those special monies, keel plans, um, universities, synagogues, churches, you know, there's a lot of money in those organizations those nonprofits just look at the Yale University or Harvard University, uh, how much money they've socked away. Yeah, and those they have they have very special tra- tax needs and they have to be treated separately. And mm-hmm. then finally, there's people from offshore that that have a totally different set of concerns. And you know, in the simplest way to think about this is if you are starting a fund and you're focused on those tax U.S. taxpayers, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. What you want to do is create some kind of an investment vehicle, some kind of mm-hmm. entity. We can call it a fund. We don't have to. It's just a place. It's a receptacle to accept money. Yeah. And that entity, I like to do them as limited partnerships. West Coast lawyers like to do them as LLCs. That's one of those fun historical things that you can, can look up. You know, lawyers yeah. on the East Coast like limited partnerships. But either way, they are um, pass-through entities. Yeah. You don't want to create a corporation in the U.S. because it gets taxed. Nobody wants double taxation. So that is the most basic thing to know, that if you're starting a hedge fund, private equity fund, VC fund, specialty finance fund, or any other kind of investment. Or a vehicle, startup? Would um, a startup is, is, is an interesting topic, too. And we'll leave, the, we'll leave the fund world for a second. And that's really a good point. We talked about this a little bit in advance as well. Yeah. You have some of the same. You have actually, um, we have to go a little bit back to some of our other categories of guys. If, if the startups yeah. have to, if the startups, if they take in money uh, from the offshore people or yeah. from the, the, the charity people, 
that they can create a big problem. We can come back to that in a second. Yeah. But I just wanted to make sure that I cover. I answered your question about the, the most basic structure. Is that does that make sense? It's it's what the what the Europeans like to call a transparent vehicle. Yes. We call it a pass through vehicle. It means right. that there's no tax on that partnership. So what are um, maybe you can walk us through what are some of the classic SEC exemption filings. Uh, let's say you're not planning on going public, but you're raising capital. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're all about that process of the venture capital, private equity, and even founders. Um, what are some of those, um, classic, uh, kind of the, the, the foundational, uh, filings, um, that, uh, some of our listeners should, should know, at least know about. It's so interesting. You know, when people come from Europe and they say, can I market my fund? Yeah. Because in European jurisdictions, the biggest problem is marketing the fund. It's the hardest thing to do. Right. And if you want to go into Europe, that's something you have to know. Yeah. But in America, in the United States, um, the, the, the marketing part of it is relatively the easiest part of it. Right. It's the part where generally, um, if you want to offer securities to people, you have to register with the SEC. That's the default setting of our securities rules. Nobody sure. can live with that. It costs gigantic amounts of money to go to the SEC generally. Yeah. And yeah. gigantic amount, amounts of money to, to deal with lawyers that are SEC lawyers. Yeah. So they rely on private placements. And private placements are relatively simple to accomplish. Yeah. You know, either you limit the number of people you, you take as investors and you keep a low profile, or you, um, you do what's called a 506C offering, yeah. which means you can be quasi-public but there's still certain limitations on the people that you can take in. So, right. you know, that's kind of the easy part. And, and it's terribly hard in Europe. It's relatively easy in uh, in in, uh, in the U.S. In the US. Another story for you. It's okay. Like stories, right? Yeah, let's go. I, I was visiting. I was visiting England uh, about. Uh, it was in UK about 10, 15 years ago. They were just adopting their gigantic, monstrous AIFMD. Their new directive for alternative investment managers for funds. And, uh, and and my partner, my regulatory partner was joining on about this role or that role. And I kind of interrupted him and I looked at everybody in the audience and I said, you know what, if you guys adopt these rules, you're going to be 10 times as hard to do business as it is in the U.S. Everyone's yeah. afraid to come to the U.S. Everyone's in, in the U.S. is litigious and this and that. It's actually a lot easier to start a fund in the U.S. Yeah. right now than it is anywhere in Europe. Awesome. Yeah, no, there, there's certainly stark differences. And, and because of that, that's where people like you help uh, people like me and, and many of our listeners to navigate uh, if you're raising capital or whatever that might be. Um, so if, so if you'd like, we can touch on some of the other issues, though, for, sure. for our clients, you know, in, in knowing what it is. The, the marketing part, as we just discussed, the ability to offer the securities, as we said, is pretty easy in this country. Right. The other concerns that people need to watch out for, and they're not terribly hard either, yeah. are... You know, I call it an exemption practice. Yeah. The SEC says, you must do this. You must register. Well, not if it's a private placement. The SEC says the investment advisor to the fund must register. Well, not if it kind of keeps a, a fewer dollars under $150 million, yep. you know. You, the, the SEC says every uh, investment fund has to register with the uh, as, a, uh, as a 40-act fund, which costs, you know, a million dollars. Yeah. Well, not if you have less than 99 investors. So it's an exemption practice. It's, it's finding the way around the requirements of the SEC in each of these cases. Does that right. make sense? So, yeah, absolutely. So, so what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, whether it, perhaps some people come to you and, and think that it's a lot more complicated than it is. And 
And you say, well, you know, given the certain scenarios, you'd be surprised at how how quickly uh, you could stand up some type of a vehicle uh, for either, you know, an investment vehicle or, um, you know, something for your startup. But uh, I, I think the moral of the story here is it's a lot more simpler to do it than maybe uh, a lot of people originally think. Would, would that be a fair takeaway from, from that? Absolutely. I think yeah. that and from doing so much cross-border work, which is one of my great loves, we talked about that. Yeah, I love yeah. doing things with people around the world. I love to tell people what I told you just a moment ago, which is, right. hey, you think the U.S. is litigious and crazy. Well, it is kind of litigious and crazy, but it's a lot easier to start a fund here than probably is in your country. Yeah, yeah. And they're always shocked. Yeah. And, they're, and, they're say, and they say, wait, how much money does it cost to start a fund? And yeah. how much time and how many filings? Right. And I say, yeah. It's really, it's not as much as you think. And they're always surprised. Yeah. Well, because, and especially, you know, going to a lawyer, you kind of think that's a little expensive, but really um, the knowledge you get can save you hundreds of thousands, if not millions, dare I say. So, so it is wise practice of doing, uh, bringing someone with your mind uh, in, into whatever deal people are working. Would you agree? Yeah. And, and, you know, trying to keep up the story thing, right. To make things interesting. I seem to recall that when someone did an analysis of, of why hedge funds fail, yeah. you know, the, the leading reason obviously is because of performance. The second leading one is because they can't raise money, right? Yeah. But, you know, another really, uh, after those two, the, the, probably the biggest reason is operational yeah. and legal mistakes that people make. And so, uh, sometimes they're not, they can't be fixed. I got another story for you, actually. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's one. I love this one because it's so um, it's so um, it's so bright in yeah. in illustrating a certain point. Um, people often come to me and say, "Okay, it's not that hard to make a fund, but we want to negotiate our deal between ourselves. There's a couple of us managers here. Yeah, principals. What's our deal going to look like? Yeah, those papers can be very simple or very complicated, and there are cautionary tales on both sides." I once represented a client, I'm sure many lawyers have, where they argued and argued and spent tens of thousands of dollars negotiating an operating agreement that would describe how they would share their winnings if they were all successful. Right. And um, and and what happened if somebody got sick or someone died or got divorced? What do you think happened? Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming nothing good. Exactly. The fund never got off the ground. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, they spend all this time and all this money. Now, the other side can happen. It doesn't happen as often, but it happens. Yeah. I had a client. I kid you not. I love this one. A client had a billion dollars under management. Yeah. They had succeeded very quickly um, with a very intellectual, sophisticated debt strategy. Yeah. And the principals came to me and said, we can't agree on what we agreed on as to what our deal is. Uh-oh. Right. So um, I think having lived through all these wars is important. And and the reason why I like telling these juxtaposing these two stories is because it shows that there's not always exactly the right answer. Yeah. But knowing that these two possibilities could exist helps people make decisions about how much they want to put into the effort in advance. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, so thank you for that. And, you know, one of the things I I just want to go back, um, 
you you mentioned that sometimes something uh, I believe you said was a 506C is something uh, that perhaps might be a good vehicle, right? Like you said, it's different for everybody and they just, you know, it depends. You got to have a conversation to figure out. Um, are there any other uh, exemption filings outside of a 506C that you, that you tend to see pop up that tend to be the, the more go-to um, in addition to that one? Going back to what, what I said earlier, remember the, the 506 addresses the whole issue of how you make an offering. Yeah. And, you know, what are the exemptions from having to, to register that often with the SEC? Mm-hmm. You're trying to think about it kind of a little bit, you know, conceptually. That's the fund itself, right? Yeah. That's the fund making the offering. Now we got to think about what about the investment advisor, the person who's advising that fund, that yeah. entity? Yeah. How does it get out of having to register with the SEC? Right. And there is a very common filing called an ERA filing, which is funny because it has totally different meaning yes. in the larger political world. Yeah. But it stands for an exempt reporting advisor filing. Right. And that's one of the most common filings that um, that the investment advisor, not the fund, the advisor to the fund, files with the SEC saying, hey, SEC, I'm exempt from having to register. Here's my file. Here's my report, my report, you know, my filing showing that I'm exempt. Awesome. And what's the consequence if someone doesn't register that? What are some of the... I really want to drive home uh, for our listeners of saying, like, do I need it? Is that a nice to have? Like, what, what does that really mean to me? Why, why, why should our, you know, people in the finance world or, or otherwise care about that? I love that question because, because, you know, again, telling more stories, um, r- regulators in many states are not always the most rational folks. Yeah. Um, and, there's this great debate that's been there for the longest time as to if you have a fund and it invests in something that's not a security, like real estate or certain kinds of loans yeah. or maybe water rights. Like Think about all kinds of things other than, than securities that you could invest right. in. Yeah. Does, that, does that fund, is it really in the securities business? Is the investment advisor really in the securities business? Right. And so we had a client, the guy called me, I'm telling you, in tears. Actually, mm. worse, crying on the phone. Mm. He had he had created a real estate fund, yeah. And this real estate fund sold, actually bought real real estate. It didn't buy and sell real estate securities. It bought actual real yeah. estate, tangible asset. And, and the fund didn't do well. And uh, someone called the, the authorities, and the, uh, the the I think it was in Arizona. The authorities said to him, "You know, you are in violation of the requirement that you have to register." Uh, as an investment advisor. And he said, but I didn't, I didn't advise on securities. I advised on real estate. Right. And they said, that's not the way we look at it. Mm. So the, and you know, um, that's one example. Another common example is many people in the real estate world. I would say that this world is, is honored in the breach. There's probably what hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of real estate partnerships in the United States and Canada. And, and, you know, um, Many people don't believe that the securities law apply at all yeah. to them. Yeah. They don't want to do blue sky filings. They don't want, they don't care about the investment advisors act. They don't want to deal with the 33 act. You know, we talked about the 506 or, you know, the, yep. the form the forms these, and you know, there, there's a, there's a spectrum of how much trouble you could get in if you ignore these rules. Right. But because the SEC and the state regulators ignore them most of the time, doesn't mean they can't get in trouble. That's right. Okay. Yeah, no, so so lesson learned. Uh, 
I better call you before I decide to to make any uh, any ballsy moves. So uh, awesome. I'm not trying to be self-serving here. And I will no. tell the client, yeah. I will tell them, look, a lot of people don't adhere to these rules. Yeah. Decide. We talked about that before. Business risk, right? Legal yep. risk. Is this worth it to you? It might yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the great things uh, from uh, from you is you help to kind of provide that probability machine to say, look, there's 82% chance, uh, you know, this will work out, but you know, there's a, that's, that's the risk that you talk about. Right. So, so I- incredible that, that, that's great. So, so it sounds like 506C, as you mentioned, is kind of the popular one. Uh, there's also ERA reporting requirements. If you are in the high finance game and you like to invest, uh, or, or, or do private placements, um, so, so moving well, remember, forward, remember the ERA filing is for the advisors, not for, for the, the advisors, company. not the fund. Yeah. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, so, uh, moving forward, um, I think, you know, this is, this is where I think personally, I think you shine is helping people navigate, um, the international, international waters for attracting investments. Um, you know, uh, so help us, th- there are so many. And, and I'll I'll leave your bio in the description below, um, just so people can kind of see the areas uh, that you understand. But uh, maybe walk us through, um, you know, what are some of the the more important uh, international structures that you like to help people get into? Like, walk us through, help us understand some applicable things that you know, actionable items. Uh, you know, walk us through, you know, who's who in the zoo, where, what are the countries that we like to register in? How does that work? Uh, maybe a verbal flow chart, if you will. How, do, how does all that come together when uh, and a, maybe a client wants to raise international or maybe wants to expand internationally? Walk us through that process of, of structuring. So let's, let's go back to the, the tale of the three pots of money. Sure. Um, and remember, the simple pot is the one where people are just offering investments to U.S. investors. They pay tax who live in the U.S., the advisors in the U.S., the investments are in the U.S., simple, right? We just do some kind of partnership as we talked about earlier. What drives us overseas? Why does anybody need to go overseas? Because that drives where you're going to go overseas, right? Two things that drive people overseas primarily, although the the tax lawyers would would say that I'm simplifying things a lot. But I'd like to think that if you understand these two concepts, you have, you really can grasp this. It's almost like a public policy thing. We talked about this. Remember with the, I try to illustrate this with the most simple example. If, you know, if Ryan has a pizza store on Central Avenue in, uh, in Calgary, or no, in, in New York City, because we're sure. in the US, yeah. and, uh, and, and Ryan pays, you know, 50% taxes roughly, right? Um, <laughs> Lucky man. And then, and then, you know, New York University shows up and says, I want to go in the pizza business. And they open a pizza store right next to Ryan. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Ryan's paying 50% taxes and NYU is paying zilch. Yeah. Well, who's going to win that battle? Yeah. I mean, game theory tells us uh, he who has the lowest fixed cost wins in a price war. That's it. So yeah. the, 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 the tax geniuses who designed like a lot of the charitable rules realized that there were certain unrelated activities, the key word, unrelated. If a charity is involved in something that's unrelated to its charitable purpose, that's business related, yeah. it does pay tax. And there's a name for that tax. The, the, in, the, in, the, in the world of um, 
of the fund lawyers and the and the structuring people, international right. structuring people, they refer to it as UBIT, unrelated business taxable income. Okay. They've switched to UBTI. You can say UBTI yeah. if you want. Yeah. That UBIT, and tell me if I'm getting too too complicated here. No, go for it. That, but that UBIT is the reason it's bizarre for tax for public policy purposes. But the only way you can block UBIT is by sending it offshore through a corporation somewhere else. And if that corporation is, if, if that entity you're investing through is a corporation in that other jurisdiction, then no tax. UBTI is blocked. Hmm. Amazing. We've encouraged trillions of dollars, and this has happened, to yeah. go to BVI, Cayman, <laughs> Bermuda, uh, Jersey, Jersey, Guernsey, um, you know, Ireland, and, and all these, you know, and, and Luxembourg, and so forth. Yeah, because of this very peculiar, and there, and we've created untold numbers of lawyers and accountants and business people in all these jurisdictions just because of this this rule, and all this money flows out and comes right back to the U.S. through these corporations. So that is the first structure. The first basic right. structure that you have in an offshore jurisdiction is a fund that looks no different necessarily than the fund that's in the U.S. that you created. Yeah. However, it's a corporation for U.S. Yeah. tax purposes. Right. That blocks the UBTI. So there is, in a sense, double taxation, but the whole reason you're in a foreign jurisdiction is because they don't. you're in a, you're in a, um, a tax haven where they don't charge taxes. Hmm. So that is the main reason. It sounds bizarre, but that is the main reason that U.S. people create offshore funds, not for you offshore investors, but for U.S. investors that hmm. have this sensitivity to UBTI. So how does that impact? That that, that that's wonderful. I, I think right. that's a, a, the right amount of simplicity, but also um, being thorough. So um, continuing with that thought, so this is beneficial to. If you're a U.S. fund or or investor, whatever that is, um, having that say, let's say Cayman Islands, right? That's a, that's popular. Having that um, helps to reduce tax liability in a very legal way. What about um, if you're raising capital, say from Europe, right? A lot of money in Europe, a um, lot of lot of smart, brilliant, beautiful people there who love to invest as well, but very different rules. How do yeah. how does a say a U.S. or North American investor? Just to in, uh, include my uh, friends from uh, both sides of the border, there, um, how you know the people who are um, driving that forward. Uh, so, what about raising capital yeah. in Europe for for U.S., Canadian, Mexico investors? What maybe walks through just a basic um, example of yeah. that? Yeah, and this is this is like that little speech I gave in, back in whatever it was, two thousand twelve. Yeah, in in London when I got all passionate as I do, and uh, and lectured everybody in the audience. You guys are making it so hard; it's going to be harder than the U.S. That's right. Um, the Europeans have a a European wide system. It's called the AIFMD. It's how it's referred to in yeah. um, in acronym. It stands for, I believe, the Alternative Investment Manager Directive. AIF. Alternative Investment Fund Manager Directive. And they impose very harsh rules on funds um, from outside Europe that are offering their securities into Europe and they yeah. want to do other things in Europe. And they're so tough, particularly on marketing, that 
I would tell you, don't even pick up the phone and call somebody in Europe. If you have a fund prospectus, don't send them an email without talking to a lawyer because you could be breaking the law. Wow. So it's, it's serious business. They don't play around on the other side of the pond. That's right. There are, there are some countries, I would say the Northern fringe. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to think about geography, you know, um, England of course is no longer part of the EU, but you know, the Dutch, the Scandinavian companies, countries who still have a lingering um, private placement regime similar to our own, where you can make some offers right. in certain ways. The Swiss have a certain system that you can work with also. But in many, maybe most of the large European countries, if you just show up with a prospectus, you can get in big trouble. Wow. Okay. So it just don't roll the dice is what we're hearing. No. Uh, not worth it. Uh, even though you might think you save a little bit, it, it could cost you, uh, you know, you, in my words, not yours. It could cost you everything. Everything you work yeah. for could be over if you don't structure your business right which is why we're doing a, a two-part series together, it is precisely for that. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, uh, anyone in, involved in the investment industry, especially in the private investment industry, the, you got to structure it right because it, it could be the kill shot uh, to your deal. And, and nobody wants that, right? There's right. many ways to blow it up. Uh, yeah. and, and legal lack of, of proper legal structure is one way uh, a deal could blow up. So awesome. Okay. So you know what, Stephen, you, you've been very generous. Uh, you know, you, you rattled off all those different countries, BVI with a Virgin, uh, British Virgin Islands came in. Uh, I think you said Isle of Man, Malta, uh, geez, you want to talk about some of them? Which ones are, I, yeah. you know, what they're used for? Yeah. Give us, give us kind of a high level rundown. We don't have to go too deep, but what are some of those high level places that, that, uh, people like to Kind of structure I'm a, their, their I'm a history buff, a geography buff. I yeah. Mean, I'm one who always a frustrated professor, a frustrated clergyman. So I, you know, yeah. I love to look at, uh, I like to think about the different parts of the world, to look at maps and things. And it's funny, the way I look at it, I think it's not just geographical, but it's also, um, it also applies, the geography drives the business. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that, um, Think, I think the, the State Department and people like that use a term called the near abroad, the near yeah. abroad. And I think that the U.S. and the Europeans and even the East Asians have their own near abroad. What's closest to us? The Caribbean. Caribbean is full of Canadians, right? Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the near abroad to the U.S. is um, Bermuda, British Virgin Islands, and most importantly, Cayman. There's a gigantic percentage of the world's funds that go through Cayman. And Cayman is a very good place and it's a relatively cheap place when you compare it to many other jurisdictions mm -hmm. to do business. Great place. Very, very high opinion of, of the Cayman lawyers and the Cayman courts system and so forth. So we're big fans of Cayman. And Cayman makes sense when you're approaching people, particularly in the U.S., because everyone in the U.S. is used to it. They can get on a plane and get there very, really easy. What's right. the near abroad for the U.K.? Jersey, Guernsey. Does anybody know? I mean, we were talking about this last night. Yeah. That in World War II, Hitler conquered, uh, I think, uh, was it Jersey or Guernsey or both? I forget. Yeah. But there are a couple of novels that came out recently about it. Very fun, interesting reads. Yeah. That's the one, the one English-speaking place, you know, in, the, in, uh, in Europe that, uh, that the Germans ruled for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, those are offshore jurisdictions that are very important to the UK. Um, the gateways to Europe... The ones that are simultaneously offshore from the U.S. perspective and also 
um, considered onshore yeah. from the European perspective are Ireland and um, uh, Luxembourg and okay. Malta. Yep. And so those are very important places for, for tax reasons. We, I won't get into all the details, but the Europeans like those jurisdictions for various reasons. They're very, very expensive places to do business for our entrepreneurial listeners. Right. But if you've got some good leads in that in that in that jurisdiction, might be worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I love it. Okay. So the near abroad rule, basically saying uh Pick the one that's nearest to you, but is also abroad. And uh, although that's not a hard rule, there are certain criteria. So for us, uh, BVI, Bermuda, Cayman for North American investors, uh, Jersey and Guernsey for uh, European, uh, specifically UK, I think you said. And then overall, just general European would be uh, Luxembourg and Ireland. Right. Uh, And the the cheaper version of that, the the poor man's version of those jurisdictions is Malta. Ah, Yes. Of course. I love it. So, um, you know, as we, as we wrap things up and you've been very generous and I just want to thank you for, for taking this time. We're certainly very fortunate to have a brilliant mind like yours, uh, on the show. Um, so, you know, to, to recap domestically, uh, you said, you know, 506 C is a nice, uh, exemption filing, but you know, don't take that at face value. You really need to, to talk to your professional about any of this stuff that we're talking about for sure. Right. This is just our opinion or our legal disclaimer. Uh, you know, we're, but, uh, you know, always, always clarify with your, your tax and uh, appropriate attorneys and, and anyone else on that deal. But, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about the near abroad rule. We talked about for domestic funds, uh, it seems like 506C is a, is a better one. Uh, I know there's Regulation A, Regulation CF that other people can look up on their own time if they're, if they're that interested on what fits for them. Uh, and then, and then uh, the Euro- our European uh, friends and listeners also I got, I got a few nuggets as well. So, so one final question, Steve. We, we, we've been through a lot. We've talked about your experience in growing up and how it led you to high finance. And then you bring that into the entrepreneurs and your clients and then international. So this is more for, for Stephen Hutler, the individual, not the, the attorney. You've, you've achieved a lot of great things, in my opinion. So I, I've asked this before. If you couldn't leave any of your money but only the principles on how to make it and how to achieve the greatness you've achieved to your kids or your loved one, what advice would you give them in place of your money? Um, I love the question. Before answering, I just want to thank you for giving me this opportunity and, and mention how important it is for fund entrepreneurs and investors that are starting all kinds of investment vehicles to have yeah. a person that they can talk to. Yeah. It's not just legal. Yeah. There's a lot of knowledge. I like to think I have a lot of it, but it's not all of it. And, you know, I've been so privileged to, to have met you and to see people that you've worked with, you know, your mentees. It's just, uh, you've done great things Thank with you. them. And uh, I think anyone who has a chance to work with you is lucky as well. And I really mean that. So that's very sincerely expressed. You're very kind. Um, Thank you. Your question is almost, uh, you know, it's the way I look at it with, with my religious instruction and background is, is a quasi-religious one. But, but, you know, I actually think that there's a lot of practical, uh, there's a practical, there's a way in which you can do good by doing good, in my, in my opinion. What, this is yeah. the way, what I found was worked for me. And 
I, and the type of person that I've seen that's successful, that I admire the most, this has worked for them too, which is share, give, and don't always expect to be paid back Yeah, by those folks. It sounds obvious. Um, you know, look, I tell my kids, you be incredibly courteous to every single person who ever you ever encounter. I don't care if it's a doorman in the building that you're walking into, you know, the person delivering a sandwich to you, uh, you know, the, the, the bank teller. I mean, number one, it's the humanistic correct thing to do. Number two, and people are so unaware of this, that at least they act unaware of this. It's so foolish because if you make people your friends, they will go out of their way for you so often. Right. Yeah. And there is this notion, I think, that when you are operating at an extremely high level in finance, in business, in the law, that you have to maintain a certain persona that is extremely proud and um, imperious and does not allow you to show your, the, who you really are and, and to act in a way that um, is kind and that, that helps people. And I have found in the long term that what works for me, yeah. it's worked for me for many decades, is going out of my way for other people. It's just that simple. Yeah. And you know, it, it's no excuse. It's no way to get around from hard work, from having to be tough when the circumstances require it. Yeah. But circumstances very often don't require it. And in fact, many circumstances require the exact opposite, as the story illustrated before with my, you know, my Latin American general counsel client. Yeah. Karma that people always talk about, about doing good and it comes back to you is true. Yeah. I've seen it over many decades and I would tell people, and I would tell my kids this, but I would tell everybody this. Help people, they'll help, someone will help you back. Yeah. Goes round and round. That's, that's beautifully said. So, well, you know, just, just to summarize on, on uh, closing statements of, of uh, everything you just said, Stephen, um, you know, be be generous, uh, you know, share, give back, believe that things, all good things, even whatever it is you put out there comes back to you. Uh, and on a, on a professional structure uh, or, or note, uh, make sure you structure things properly, whether it's your investment, your startup, whatever that is, get the right counsel, whether it's you or somebody else. Um, and, you know, going international has those tax advantages, which definitely comes in handy when you're ready to grow. Um, again, work with someone who understands that space and uh, work with the SEC. And like I said, above all, be generous and give back. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on our show. That's enough for me, everybody. Follow these principles that Stephen has taught us and you too could be well established in your pursuit of making billions. Wow, what a show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions.